Hi, I'm Caitlin. And I'm Laura, and welcome to Obscuriana. This will be a podcast where we dig through the attic of history and discover crazy stories to bring to you. Okay, so a few years ago, I found this random reference in a book. It's called Hitler's Furies by Wendy Lower about women in Nazi Germany and how they had more of an impact than we're inclined to think. And we'll mention this book in the show notes as well. I actually found it while I was doing some beach reading a few years ago. <laughs> and so it's a bit heavy for beach reading. I know, I know. I feel very like Hermione-esque. Just a bit of light reading. <laughs> well, I mean, we were on vacation with uh, with my husband's parents and, and I found myself reading a book on the history of food in America. See? That's why we're friends, right? Exactly. <laughs> You've always been fascinated by, by World War II in particular. I know. And it's probably unhealthy. I go through World War II documentary phases and my husband knows that. <laughs> You just prepare something peppy to watch afterwards. Right. Yeah. No, this is, and that's, and that's the thing is we're probably over, over the course of all of this, going to talk about a lot of things that are foreign in nature. I mean, there's a lot that goes unsaid about U.S. history as well. Yeah. Um, That's where we're based. But also, I mean, we do want to cover a lot of different world events because having grown up in the U.S. school system, there's a lot. (laughs) There's so much. We just get like mostly Western Europe and then U.S. history. Even in college. We get Western Europe and North America. And that's about it. That's fair. That's like (laughs) 85% of the history that we get in schools here. And it's unfortunate. Just as a whole, you know, we we want to dig into those things and, and, uh, and explore these things and, and we'll learn along with you. I mean, I, I yeah. didn't know anything about this before tonight, um, outside of the fact that it existed. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't I didn't know about it except a random mention that it stuck in my head for yeah, years. Yeah, so you know, we, we do want to explore that that uh you know, untold history, that's the point. Um yeah. and and kind of get past that that whitewashing and um and see what's what's underneath it. Yes, so we will be digging up lots of topics, and towards the end of the show, we will give you um, some links if you want to contact us and give us suggestions, because like Laura said, we always want to learn. And it's very difficult, I don't know if you know this, it's very difficult to learn about things that you don't know you don't know. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So (laughs) How do you search knowledge I don't have? <laughs> uh Google does have a filter for that. <laughs> no, no, I'm kind of concerned what I would get. If anybody's brave enough to Google it, let us know what you find. <laughs> so combining my love for history and this mention in this book, we come to now I'm going to butcher this in German because I am not a native or at all a German speaker. So after I attempt at saying what this organization is called, I will refer to it by the English name to save all of your ears. In German, it's called Stille Hilfe, which is silent aid or silent help for prisoners of war in internees association. This group was established right after World War II to help escaping Nazis and Nazi veterans with their escape and legal representation and support for their families. It isn't shocking that something like this was formed. There are a lot of veterans organizations after any war. 
Sure. And a lot of those people had a surprising amount of money. So you're going to hire who you can. So this would be like the people who represented them during the Nuremberg trials. Okay. Yes. And we're going to touch on that because they really did end up becoming a force of their own, but something that we don't talk about when we learn about World War II history. Just to talk a bit about the founding and the early years, it's officially registered under the name Silent Aid on November 15th, 1951, following their first meeting in October of that year. However, many founding members had been active since the end of the war, particularly with helping Nazis get out of Germany, to South America, and Syria. And we have heard of course, about the escapes of war criminals through rat lines or with Odessa, and also the U.S.'s role and potentially the Vatican and the Catholic Church's role in these escapes. Right. And I have a few... Post-war Nazis. Post-war Nazis, perfect, that we know Silent Aid was involved in. Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, Martin Sommer, who was the hangman from Buchenwald, Artur Axman, who was the head of the infamous Hitler Youth, and also Joseph Mengele, and then many, many other names that are not as well known. And all of these... Doctors, yes? No. Yes. Okay. Yes. I so, think where I, where I was remembering that name from. So Joseph Mingelo was the doctor at Auschwitz. There are many survivors of the Holocaust who have vivid memories of him deciding their family's fates. And to go a step further, I mean, the U.S. was pretty involved in pulling lots of top-ranking scientists for their own programs, like mm-hmm. Werner von Braun, who became the director of NASA and could probably be his own podcast. Yeah, that's an entirely different topic. Yes. So behind the scenes, Silent Aid was working on assisting these rat lines, although they weren't formally organized into a group until 51. All right. So let's talk a bit about the founding members once they became official. Buckle up because it's a little surprising. Oh boy. Once it was officially established, they named the president of their group as Helen Elizabeth, Princess von Eisenberg. So she was wealthy, married to an anti-Semite, and very well connected with both the aristocracy, naturally, she is a princess, but also in Catholic circles. The other founding members included some church representatives, Theophil Worm, and Johannes Neuhausler, and naturally, no group like this would be complete without some, and I'm using giant quotations here, former Nazi officials like Wilhelm Spengler, and he was the head of the Central Reich Security Office, and Heinrich Maltz, he was the personal advisor to Ernst Kaltenbrunner, but the guy I want to take a second to talk about is Theophil Worm, and not just because his name is fantastic, although it kind of is. He's a study in contradictions, and there are a lot of people in the history of this group that just seem to contradict themselves. He was a Christian his entire life, but he did a little bit of church jumping within sort of the Protestant umbrella. He was a few different faiths. He worked his way up in many of these Christian organizations. And at the beginning of 
the Nazi regime. He was involved in many open protests against them, even though he initially supported them, particularly because of the Nazi euthanasia program of euthanizing invalids or those who were handicapped. And yeah, it's interesting. It. He was against it and he was okay. very vocal. He got put under house arrest, got put on lists. It was very dangerous and he continued to speak out against it. It's kind of funny though, because two things came out of that that people were aware of this euthanasia program because it's right. all, often presented like, oh, no one knew what was going on in Germany. Right. And also because he seemed to get a little bit quieter once it was no longer just handicapped people. So he, he backed off a little, but he was vocally enough against the Nazi regime that after the war, as part of denazification, and the allied powers are looking at putting people into positions of power that either were not active in the Nazi party or vocally spoke out against them. Mm -hmm. uh, he was elected the chairman of the evangelical church for all of Germany. Oh, wow. So at this point, you're thinking, oh, he might be a good guy. How, how the heck did he end up in this organization? Then he went on to be a signatory of the 1945 Stuttgart Declaration of Guilt, which I had never heard of. This declaration essentially came out and said it never talked about specifics, but it apologized for being part of the quote-unquote infinite wrong that was brought over peoples and countries and for quote-unquote not standing for our beliefs more courageously. They talked around the subject, but they said, I'm sorry. Okay. So no one was happy with this. It's <laughs> the worst of like, both worlds. It's it's that very bland, it doesn't actually mean anything. So everybody oh, we're was sorry that we hurt your feelings. So either people thought you didn't go far enough, or they thought you're capitulating to the victors again. Right. This is after World War One all over again. And this is why we wanted Hitler, because he was strong. So it really didn't serve the church well. And then behind the scenes... He was helping establish Silent Aid as a veterans aid organization, knowing full well what the goals were. So he seems kind of contradictory, right? He's very active and risking his life to speak out against the Nazi regime and then joined this aid group that sounds kind of okay because they're helping veterans, but then publishes but the, this but the fair. veterans that they're helping are not not so much the soldiers as the higher-ups who actually were calling the shots imagine if yeah. the fda did that today no no no. we're only supporting <laughs> the generals you guys can fend for yourselves right yeah it's fine a little bit contradictory and yet many german people identified and supported their goals particularly in the 40s and 50s now that that tangent is over, just because I think it's fascinating that you see people who have two very different lives. Of course. And both of them are public. Only one is public and one is private, so that's a little strange. He was very outwardly both things, and no one said, please go away. No, no, no. we're going to make you the head of the evangelical organization. Wait, what? I mean... Every general reference you find to this man neglects to mention his participation in this organization. Of course. About the great things he did, which, okay, risking your life to speak out against a horrible regime is great, but it wasn't perfect. Yeah. Back to 
Helene Elizabeth, the Princess von Eisenberg, she as the first president described their mission. And I'm going to read you a quote that sounds very benign. And then they went on to be anything but. She says, from the start of its efforts, the silent aid sought to take care of, above all, the serious needs of the prisoners of war and those interned completely without rights. Later, their welfare service was active for those accused and arrested as a result of war trials, whether in the prisons of the victors or in German penal institutions. So it sounds like, hey, we just want to help the poor guys who are imprisoned. That's all we're yeah, doing. They, they had their rights stripped away. We really have family members who are no longer with them. Let's let's help them out. Oh, wait, sorry. We're not helping them, after all. If you're poor or not an interesting personality for us to glom onto, we're not as interested. They want, they want the glamorous people that they can talk with. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, wasn't Germany divided? And weren't the Allied powers all working to stop Nazism after the war? Public aid group comes out that seems like a little shady. Yeah, but they were distracted by other concerns. First, the rise of communism in Germany and South America and Russia was very distracting to the United States. Early early 50s would have been red scare. Yeah, so learning to hide under their desks just like they do today. For different reasons, but equally horrible. That's why we learn about these very random things from history. Yeah, because if we ignore the past, we are doomed to repeat it. Yes, we had several people from the United States who were willing to kind of ignore, look the other way. Particularly, if these post-war Nazis came to them and said, hey, I have all these connections. I can help you root out communism, but you've got to keep me safe. There was some looking of the other way. And second of all, Silent Aid was officially classified as an aid organization with a suitably vague name. And with the German government recognizing them as an aid organization, they spent a lot of energy reiterating that they were good people just helping other misunderstood people. They managed to kind of get themselves off of the radar. Starting in the 1950s, a huge focus of the group was counter-propaganda during the Nuremberg trials, which we mentioned earlier, to prevent the death penalty of accused Nazis. How did they do this? Well, they had a very organized strategy. They utilized political and influential contacts, and then they had a giant propaganda push, including publishing, I'm going to also butcher this, I apologize, the Munin Verlag, which from what I could find, there are 57 books and more than 50 years of monthly periodicals. Oh, wow. They organized press campaigns, open letters, petitions they encouraged all german people to take part in they also represented accused nazis from a very specific angle they were poor innocent victims whose only mistake was their blind faith in hitler or their only mistake was being a good soldier and carrying out orders i've definitely heard that on multiple occasions Well, as I was reading this, I was fascinated because that propaganda campaign clearly worked. It not only has lasted until, Mm -hmm. right, you and I were in school, which we're not going to talk about how long ago that was, but I still... (laughs) 
Yeah, I still hear it today. It seems to have been something that other governments heard. This kind of mentality of, well, they were just taking commands and they had irreproachable morals and now they were these victims of the victor's justice, right? And we've seen that in later wars too. You don't necessarily want to blame the guy on the ground who was just following orders, but you know, at the same time, there were people who did stand up to it, even though those were their orders. So they created a mentality in a way that we've we've seen survive. And then on top of that, they painted themselves as a benevolent charity, just doing the right thing for their fellow countrymen. Helene Elizabeth focused a lot of her energy on those condemned to death in Landsberg prison. And she either became or named herself, I couldn't find confirmation either way, the mother of the Landsbergers. People viewed her in this motherly way. She painted herself as the caregiver for these poor people who were imprisoned awaiting trial. That worked well for her. She's the president of an aid organization and a mother figure to these prisoners. You're not going to think the aid organization's doing anything all that bad. Sure. Yet they were publishing all these periodicals and <laughs> paying legal bills to get some of the biggest criminals out of prison. And then behind the scenes, they were working with the rat lines, financing Nazis and their families. There's evidence that they paid for the family's Christmases of these prisoners. Oh, wow. Yeah. So while president, she tirelessly petitioned, pleaded the UQ's cases, and she really turned to Catholic circles around this time. She even went as far as pleading with Pope Pius the 12th. She wrote a letter dated November 4th, 1950. It said, I know everyone who is involved. Nobody can speak of guilt and crime anymore who has looked into their souls. Holy Father, you ask, completely in confidence, mother of the Landsbergers. Six days later, he promised that everything will be done from Rome to save the lives of the Landsbergers. So there is confirmed evidence that either their propaganda campaign reached Italy and worked, or that the Catholic Church was more involved than they would like to talk about. During this time period of Nuremberg and the Landsberg prisons, they provided legal assistance through a lawyer called Rudolf Aschenauer, and they funded, like I mentioned, vacations, they funded dismissals of cases, Christmas benefits, and they ran drives for sweaters and other necessary items. However, they, you know, as we probably guessed, they weren't solely philanthropic. They also used a lot of their funding to pursue ideological and revisionist objectives, which we can argue, you know, oh, they were just good men is a bit revisionist. Right, absolutely. (laughs) Some of it was outward. And, you know, were they successful? Yes, to a point. After these trials, the Catholic Church separated themselves. And at the end of the 1950s, Princess von Eisenberg stepped down as president, but she didn't stop working in the group, of course. And she was active until her passing in the 1970s. You might think, okay, they got through all the major trials. They're probably done. 
that wasn't the case. They just had to regroup. That's kind of standard operating procedure for some of these types of groups is once you get through the thing you need to do, you reframe it a little bit, change it around, change change the name, switch up who's in charge, and then you can just keep doing the thing you're doing. Well, and we know there may have been a philanthropic aspect to this, but the fact that they're publishing these periodicals and working in the red line says to me, That's not their ultimate goal. Right. So what they did starting in the 60s was they really went underground. They continued to do propaganda campaigns, continued to use funds for making sure that post-war Nazis are provided for. They also got a new figurehead named Gudrun Berwitz, and this starts a new period for silent aid. Gudrun Berwitz... I'm going to start by saying her maiden name was Himmler. Oh, wow. All right. (laughs) This is where the twist comes in. She was the daughter of Heinrich Himmler. Yeah. Not even like a, you know, my aunt's third cousin on the other side. No, 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 no. No, this is the plot twist you've all been waiting for, right? (laughs) Right. So for any listeners that might not know, we'll just do a little super brief history of Gudrun Himmler. Um, She was the daughter of Heinrich and Marga Himmler, born in 1929. She was considered Nazi royalty because of her father. Her father was second in command to Adolf Hitler, and Himmler was the man cited as the architect for the Holocaust. He loved his daughter. There are a lot of... There are so many stories about his attitude, even his day-to-day life, that just would absolutely blow your mind. Yeah, but I guess maybe his one redeeming quality is he perhaps loved his daughter because of her very Aryan looks, and he loved to show them off. He called her puppy. They took a lot of day trips together, including to Dachau, where she insisted she saw nothing wrong happening. After the war and her very beloved father's suicide via a cyanide capsule that he had hidden, she was imprisoned for four years with her mother in various detention centers around Europe. All this seemed to do was kind of cement her virulently anti-Semitic views. You can't imagine why. I know, really. I don't think these detention centers particularly cater to the lifestyle she was used to living, but I also assume that considering she was Nazi royalty, she probably had it better than a lot of people. But yeah, Four Seasons, they are not. After being released from prison with her mother, they both lived in comparable poverty, which is not hard to compare. They were Nazi royalty. Sure. Mm-hmm. Doesn't take much to step down, but she did have to get a job. So she taught herself bookbinding and dressmaking. And then. Well, that's. Uh, I guess this is. We're, we're well into electric sewing machines. Never mind. Because I, I do a lot of historical dressmaking, or at least the, the knowledge thereof. And uh, several hundred years of that being very, very difficult to get all of those layers and everything. But yeah, no, we're talking the 50s and 60s. That's, that's she wasn't, straightforward. She wasn't in too much pain, I think. Her fingers were not bleeding from this dressmaking. However, she didn't seem to love it because she then went and worked as a secretary. Here is the little minor plot twist. She worked as a secretary for the German intelligence service, which was supported and overseen by the U.S. government at this time. And she worked there from 1961 to 1963. To be fair, it was under 
an assumed name, and they did let her go when they found out who she was. Oh, good for them. However, a few things seem odd. After her death, a former spy came out and admitted that she had worked there and they did know her identity the whole time. It's just that it became public. Ah, and when it becomes public knowledge, you have to actually do something about it. Yes. So the other thing that seems a little odd, we will come back to later and I'll remind you when we get there. Okay. In late 1960, she met and married the writer and later an official in a right-wing political group. Shocking, I know. Wolf Dieter Berwitz, with whom she shared similar views and eventually two children. So when she became the figurehead, Silent Aid lost one titled princess and gained a self-styled Nazi princess who was very proud of her father's legacy and fought hard to have him acknowledged as a good man by the world at large. She was active in Silent Aid on the side, but publicly she worked to restore what she felt was her father's good name. At regular meetings of Silent Age, she would hold court among her many admirers, both those who were a part of the organization and those who came just to see her. She also attended reunions of Nazi SS officers, often held in Austria, possibly as recently as 2014. Oh, wow. Going back in time slightly, during the 1970s, their main public activity was in supporting and disseminating propaganda with the Auschwitz Lie or Die Auschwitz-Lüche group that was headed by Thies Christofferson and Undo Valendi. Undo was a founding member of the neo-Nazi group, the NPD, that eventually became huge in Germany. And the goal of this Auschwitz Lie group was pretty self-explanatory, portraying the facts about Auschwitz's fabrications and insisting the prisoners were treated well and the crematoriums did not exist. Yeah, and we have enough people who were literally in the building. Gonna go with no. But you know, you see this and oh no, absolutely. I mean, you see, you see all of the the Holocaust deniers, not just at Auschwitz, but anywhere. Yes, completely bizarre to me. It's crazy to me too, but it does seem to fit their narrative, even though there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. That's fair. And of course, you know, Gudrun loved this because she was working to clear her father's name, so this was the perfect thing for them to align with. So Gudrun and Silent Aid were fully on board with financially backing and publishing propaganda for this organization. She really encouraged the group to embrace the silent in their title. Huh, and really work behind the scenes instead of being public about it. They were funneling monies into propaganda and then newer neo-Nazi groups and then supporting the underground lives of those who had served in the Nazi regime. And she only admitted once in an interview that she was associated with this organization. But journalists repeatedly pull up strong connections between her and Silent Aid. It's one of those you've never seen Bruce Wayne and Batman in the same room. So she is the Bruce Wayne slash I feel like this is a horrible comparison. That's a a terrible (laughs) parallel. But I just mean in the sense that you can't prove that she's done anything with them, but you also can't prove that she hasn't. I mean, I've never been in the same room as Batman, so by that (laughs) logic, I could also be Batman. I don't know. Next podcast, tune in. Find out if Laura is Batman. (laughs) 
as a former professor of mine would say when he went off on tangents close parentheses there we go i like it we are back so silent aid was part of and encouraged the creation of hng in 1979, essentially called the National Organization for Political Prisoners and Their Relatives. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, changing the name and the same shit all over again. I know. So to this group called H&G that was suspiciously modeled on Silent Aid, and they naturally wanted to expand their membership and influence. They weren't silent. They did want to promote anti-Semitic views. They also helped to fund and ensure relatively comfortable stays for neo-Nazi prisoners in Germany. Following a 2011 investigation and conducted a series of raids, Germany finally banned them. And yet silent aid lived on. Silent Aid continued to function in Germany, as we may have forgotten, but they were an officially recognized aid agency. That's terrifying. Until 1999. What happened in 1999, you ask? Well, remember when I said there were two suspicious things related to where Goodwin worked for the German intelligence agency? We're Uh about to talk about number two. In the 1990s, through the diligent work of, from my understanding, it was a family that was affected by war crimes that did a lot of this research and then worked with journalists. It became public that Silent Aid, specifically through Gudrun, had been funding the stay in a care home for a man named Anton Malath. He was a wanted war criminal, and she had been funding his life in this care home since the 1980s. Ironically, because you're thinking, where is this connection? This care home is on the same site as the German intelligence service was located, which in turn was formerly owned by Rudolf Hess, another big name in the Nazi world. Seems a little suspicious. That's a lot of coincidences right there. When it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it might be a duck. From what I've been able to dig up with my limited knowledge of German is that this care home, which is not posted in anything I could find, even the things I was able to translate, it's also housing many post-war Nazis. So he may not be the only one that was getting aid. Once it became public that she was funding his very comfortable stay in a very nice care home, people started to realize that Silent Aid was recognized as an aid organization and they were getting ready to bring this elderly man to trial for his crimes i was just gonna ask if this had come out because he had passed or if he no like okay so they found him yes okay oh you know what i think i remember hearing about that yeah it was a big deal like in the 90s because it had been kind of the lull with being able to find nazis and right Then all of a sudden they found this guy. In Germany. In Germany. Living in a care home. Very comfortably. Yeah, I I remember hearing about the trial. Okay, all right, all right. This is connecting, folks. It's all coming together and it's kind of horrifying. So now that people realize how he was living in this care home, people got angry. And then then once they realized that the German government officially recognized them as an aid organization. They kind of went, oh, wait. We have to do this. There were some uncomfortable conversations and it was officially revoked. Well, and however, it kind of was out of sight, out of mind for, for 20 years. Exactly. It's kind of, it got lost in the attic of 
German history. Yeah, exactly. I mean, had they been learning about this in school, might not have right. survived that long. But, you know, Silent Aid and Gudrun Borowitz were not deterred. They just continued to finance him through his trial, conviction, and until his death in 2002. And right. I, I even found some obscure note without citation, but it kind of seems to fit that she, like, brings flowers to his grave. So, or during her life. Spoiler alert, she has now passed. She brought flowers to his grave. I was going to say, she'd be almost 100 now. Yes. So let's talk about post-1999 when people were appalled. The year of being appalled. The Israeli director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center was interviewed about you know what they thought about silent aid and they said we think it's symbolically important but what their impact is they were already set up to be underground sure but their focus was on the immediate threat which is you know these new neo-nazi groups and younger neo-nazis however we know they don't go away because they proved that after the Nuremberg trials. So they just faded into the background, let the Fuhrer die. Fuhrer, that's probably not the right word. Or maybe it's perfect. But they let the uproar die and uh-huh. continued to funnel inheritances and donations because, of course, when prominent post war Nazis passed away, a lot of them left their inheritances to this group and That's not telling or anything no no and of course they have donations which is also awkward but in the mid a little bit more private about that like i feel like if an estate leaves their entire everything to a, an aid organization like that usually becomes kind of public knowledge yes somewhere that, that I mean, sends I mean, up some flags for somebody. I'm assuming they have like a really well set up network of shell companies. However, they do have an address. You can write to them. They just apparently don't oh, respond. No. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We, we will not be publishing that in the show notes. No, no. We can't stop you from writing to them, but please, we didn't send you. We are not encouraging you to find it and contact them i personally would not like to contact them because i really don't know what they have to say i feel like they've said things even silently the past you know 50 60 years (laughs) just fine so now that they are not an aid an official aid organization it's hard to find records of how much money they have But in the mid-2000s, from data that people far more intrepid than I were able to gather, it was estimated that they get around sixty to 80,000 a year in just donations, not inheritances. Wow. And that's funneled through their other neo-Nazi organizations. And also, not surprising, considering they've had two prominent females of the organization, They're very involved in female neo-Nazi groups, but 
you know, you kind of think, well, how much influence can they still have as we see the last of the Nazis are still sympathetic to the cause die off, right? We can be certain they knew of silent aid and perhaps attended meetings and perhaps idealized Gudrun. Sure, but money themselves or, or any number of things. Exactly. And as far as I know, I think they have one pamphlet that comes out a year now. They're not, you know, push, pushing out 57 books. They seem to have kind of moved into obscurity. However, neo-Nazis who have left have repeatedly cited, or there's one prominent former neo-Nazi who was involved in one of the groups that Silent Aid funded and worked with, says that they are more insidious even today than we know. They have many high-ranking officials in the German government or that strongly support them. But of course, we don't have actual proof we can provide. So that's one word against another word, but it seems to fit with their history. They were forward-thinking, unfortunately, and they had a heavy focus on securing inheritances particularly under Gudrun. So lots of people are likely looking to them as beneficiaries as they begin to pass away. And, you know, they may not be active in the immediate publishing of propaganda or paying for neo-Nazis' needs after the last of the Nazis die off, but they certainly have some income flow that they are pushing towards newer neo-Nazi groups. Sure. So I don't think their influence is done. And some people do feel like their influence is done. When Gudrun died in 2018, she, you know, never really granted a ton of interviews among the mainstream people. I don't know what she was doing behind the scenes. I was to say, probably trying to avoid saying anything that might incriminate her. Yes, but she did continue to defend her father's actions publicly. But they, you know, a lot of people felt that that was kind of the end of it. But it definitely continues to survive. They have less members and less aging veterans to support. Those that still track this group know that their funding definitely goes deep and it's definitely going towards neo-Nazi groups in existence today, particularly in Germany. So arguably, they may not exist as a organized aid organization, but I have almost zero doubt that there is still money being distributed by them. Absolutely. And I don't think we've kind of seen the last of their influence because we know they know how to influence insidiously. Yeah, and what might we learn in, in 20 years? Exactly, because I think some of this was learn in hindsight right think about how long it took to find that guy in the nursing home yeah absolutely they're obviously unfortunately smart about how they do so this takes us to the last part which is you know why would we even talk about them and i think there's probably a few takeaways one we already touched on which is there's so many parts of history that are fascinating that are never talked about and yet They've influenced a lot of things. In this case, right, how we viewed war criminals. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and like I said, that's still something that kind of gets passed around today. 
not just for World War II, but for for every uh, engagement that happens. Yeah, yeah. And we, you know, we live in the U.S. and we always paint ourselves as the good guys and the right fighters. And how could that turn around? There were times, there are wars we have lost. I'm not going to, you know, go into that because it's a whole nother podcast. But there are wars that we have lost. Sure. And... You know how do how do you view what is engagements that weren't necessarily the the right thing to get into and and doing the, the maybe the right thing for the wrong reasons or, yeah yeah or think about or the like, wrong thing for the right reasons I mean there's there's all sorts of different different things that we we both hear about and don't hear about for exactly reasons. well and think about Guantanamo Bay exactly and so when it's an entire institution behaving like that where's that line between you were just following orders i mean i have to say whoever came up with that defense is genius i just can't say i necessarily agree with this yeah so the other thing i think we can probably take from it is that an organization with a benign sounding name like silent aid and officially doing things you know to do something noble like support veterans regardless of if we agree that these veterans were evil or good, they might have other motives in mind. And we can't just take organizations that are influencing our government and our lives at face value. Absolutely. I mean, you do have to, to do some digging to figure out where those loyalties are and, and what their real motivation is, because that is almost never public. Yeah, because, I mean, I think the average German, right, it's not like you could get on Google in 1950. Of course. And see where their money's going. The average German is just going to see what they publish publicly. And these books, as far as I can find, were never public. So it's just the the propaganda that they intend to put out to people. And it's things that get passed between friends and and small conversations and and then it grows and grows. Um, It doesn't have to be plastered on a billboard for it to be, or the side of a building for it to be propaganda. Exactly. So I think there's definitely a takeaway from that. uh, You know, we can't always just be complacent in things that might look great on the outside. Not to say right. you should be suspicious of everything. No, that's because that's, that's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Being vigilant constantly. I feel like I did that the first like six months of the pandemic. And it was oh, just me too. exhausting. Like I, no, uh-uh, can't do that. Yeah, no. Learned the no. hard way. That's that's not the way to go. I think a lot of a lot of people did as well. Yes. Um, so it, it's, it's a matter of choose your battles, but also be knowledgeable and, and be watching for those red flags. Yeah. And it's never bad to ask questions. If something seems off, this is a general life thing, I think. If something seems off, ask the question. Because, yeah. you know, people from the church, I think, naturally, regardless of your religion, or even if you're atheist, I think your belief system, someone who is viewed as a leader in your belief system, you're much more inclined to trust that they're involved in the right things, particularly when they're saying what Hitler was doing was bad and we shouldn't have killed innocent people. Right. I mean, when when 90% of something someone says you agree with, the other 10% you're more likely to go along with. It's a good lesson in listening to your intuition because... Oh, 100%. I remember when I read this, like, little note, I was just, I was thinking, 
wow, that seems like something seems very weird to me. And I wish I spoke German or Google Translate was better because I believe I found the new logo of Silent Aid and the places I found it are slightly concerning and I'm not even sure we should put this in the podcast. So, so I, I actually do know a couple of people who do speak German. Uh, if we can find anything to corroborate, we can put it in the show notes. Okay, perfect. So Taylor, where, where can people find us and, uh, and send us suggestions? Yeah, so I was going to say, if you liked what you heard today and want to hear more as we continue to develop this podcast, we'd love if you subscribe. We're on all of your favorite podcast services if you search Obscuriana. But most importantly, like Laura said, if you want to reach out, give us ideas, feedback, just want to send us something happy. Since we've just spent a while talking about something sad, please write us at obscuriana at gmail.com or you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all under Obscuriana, and Facebook at Obscuriana Podcast. On these, we'll also have fun posts coming up and our show notes linked uh, also in the notes below. As we wrap up, we hope this week has lots of lighthearted and fun things in store for you. Hopefully, we will be able to bring you something more lighthearted next time. I don't know, Laura, if you've thought about what you want to cover next time. Do we um, have one that's happy? We can even do less depressing. That mind. That's, that's valid. Why don't we dive into one of my... Uh my more recent topics uh, that I've been kind of working on and that's the history of the modern cocktail yes I would love that unless you're in recovery and then we fully support a mocktail you know what those are just as important they are have flavor and you still should enjoy life but yeah I think uh I think that might be the I think that might be the winner kind of bring us both ends of the spectrum Perfect. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this very first episode of Obscuriana, and we look forward to bringing you more lighthearted topics than this. We've set the bar low, including with our next episode that we've just figured out. On the fly. (laughs) Because we are new. Don't judge. (laughs) 